I V M. Welcome to Police Chalky, a special limited series on your favorite public policy podcast, All Things Policy. This series will take you behind the khaki uniform, beyond the flashing red beacon, and into the heart of the functioning of the Indian police forces. We cast a critical eye on the role and function of the police in the Indian democracy, from the silent persistence of paperwork and meticulous investigation to risky counterterrorism efforts and policing in conflict zones. We explore the need for police reform and accountability in the system. Each episode brings you a comprehensive exploration of a unique facet of policing, illuminated by the insights of a former IPS officer who has lived the life behind the badge. So join us every Monday morning as we take you into the complex world of police chalky. Hello and welcome back to Police Chalky. I'm your host Shri Krishna Upadhyaya. And my guest today on the show is Mr. Javed Ahmed. Last week on the show, we spoke about a day in the life of a cop. Uh, we discussed different actors within the police system, starting from the police constable to the DGP of a state. Today, we'll be doing something different. Uh, today, we'll step back from the front lines and we'll take a broader look at the foundation upon which our police system has been built. So in this episode, I'll be talking to Mr. Ahmed about police laws in the country. And we'll trace the evolution of these laws from the colonial rule to the present day. And before that, a very warm welcome to you, uh, Mr. Ahmed on the show. Good afternoon, Sri, and thank you for uh, for the second episode. Sure. So uh, let's uh, start with the historical aspect of uh, police legislation, right? So after 1857, a revolt, the first war of independence, as we call it, the British established their control in the country. Uh, they needed a police system to enforce uh, colonial laws and to maintain law and order. And this is when the Indian Penal Code was enacted and soon the next year in 1861, uh, they enacted a police act. Uh, so this police act gave the structure, the organization for our police forces under the control of uh, the British back then. It also laid down how the appointments of police officers need to be done, what is the hierarchy, what are their powers, functions and duties and so on. However, after independence, our police forces continue to function under this particular law enacted in 1867. But from what I understand, Mr. Ahmed, uh, the purpose of police had drastically changed after the independence, right? Earlier, it was a police force which served the masters, the Britishers. But now in an independent um, democratic India, we needed a police force which would serve the citizens, uh, the public. But the police force continued to operate under this uh, legislation, which had, you know, severe centralization of power in the hands of the top hierarchy of the police. Uh, it did not have enough in terms of police accountability and uh, the state or the Political executive had a lot of uh, control over the police force. So in your opinion, Mr. Ahmed, I want to know from you, did this law in fact ensure that the police continue to function with the colonial baggage and uh, found it difficult to adapt to a democratic system? Yeah, that's a very uh, good intro that, that you gave. You see, uh, you rightly said that this 1861 Police Act was enacted to create a police system which was uh, to work for the masters, that is the colonial masters. The intention of this Police Act of 1861 was to ensure that there was a structure that was totally in control of the colonial master and there was no scope for any feedback or complaint mechanism for the public. That served their purpose because their purpose obviously was to extract revenue from uh, the people here and it was, in fact, for this purpose that the whole structure was built. 
let me also add that they had in 1861 created two kinds of structures right. one was for the three presidency towns of calcutta madras and bombay as they were then called where the police was given more independence and there was some accountability but in the hinterland where the primary purpose of the administration was extraction of revenue and extraction of other other goods from from the indian hinterland the police was made subservient to the district magistrate so that the district magistrate while collecting revenue of various kinds would have the services at hand of the police force which was answerable to no one except to the state that is to the magistrate that is how the structure was built and unfortunately even after independence not much has changed as far as the legislative structure is concerned the result is that the ethos of the police has continued to uh, to be the same as was built on around the 1861 act and obviously that is an anachronism that that we have to do away with at the very earliest and of course there were some attempts for legislative changes which i believe came much later or uh, some states uh, did enact their separate police legislations but it actually took a former ips officer who i believe is from your state of up mr prakash singh who went up to the supreme court uh, and in a pil got some directions on legislative reform for the police but we'll come to that later but i wanted to double click on what you mentioned that you know the ethos of the police has continued to remain the same so could you elaborate on that a little bit the ethos when i talk about the ethos i am talking about the way the people in authority in the police department and i will mention the uh, station house officer the sp and the dg who are the three people who have original powers in the police setup the way they are uh, held accountable and the way they operate and the way their their functioning uh, uh, is, is structured there is very little space given in these authorities as far as taking the taking the public into confidence is concerned any complaint how it is handled there are individual officers who definitely take public complaints very seriously last time we talked about how almost every sp spends an hour or two hours listening to public complaints and following up but these are individual efforts these are widespread individual efforts i must quickly add but the the structures that needed to be created and which were which were proposed in the prakash singh judgment that you mentioned just now those structures these formal structures which should be there so that the people have a larger say in the running of the police and have a larger say in complaint resolution those structures are yet to come into existence the result is that the common man is at the mercy of the station house officer or the sp or the dg as far as getting his complaint resolved is concerned the ethos is is the same the ethos may change in individuals but the ethos of the system needs to be changed right and uh, just to bring in the complete picture here so other than of course your uh, typical police forces or uh, state also has different uh, police units in terms of say reserve police or uh, armed constabulary and these were set up uh, much later uh, i think some of them were set up even uh, if uh, i mean correct me if i'm wrong but these were set up after independence right so uh, how did these sort of evolve the reserve police forces and the armed constabulary and all of those i don't think these were set up after independence uh, these were set up along with the uh, initial setting up of the uh, of the police forces 
these reserve forces or the reserved armed police forces as they are called are not meant to uh, at least were not meant to be on duty on a day to day basis they were there to supplement and augment the, the the police the local police forces if and as and when a situation arose for example if there was a big uh, congregation for a religious uh, purpose or if there if there was an anti dacoity operation or any such thing then the augmentation of the police force uh, which was available at the thana level was done through these reserved forces unfortunately now because the police is so stretched for resources all the time now the uh, the deployment of these reserve forces has become almost a routine thing right and i sort of want to extrapolate this into the union level as well uh, because we know we there are a lot of central police organizations right and uh, for example there is the crpf the bsf the cisf the nsg we also have railway which has its own protection force and uh, so on uh, but to take a step back the constitution thinks of police as a state subject both police and public order are found in uh, list 2 of uh, schedule 7 which means the state governments have powers uh, to control and enact laws regarding these subject matters uh, but the central government i believe has slowly shown greater involvement in policing activities over the years and one of the ways is of course through uh, the central police organizations that i just mentioned then you also have central uh, investigative agencies such as cbi or uh, ed a uh, national investigation agency which was set up after the 2611 act and uh, i plan to uh, do a separate episode in fact where on just central investigative agency in the coming weeks uh, but i just wanted to flag this uh, issue here Uh, and also we have some digital initiatives like the CCTNS, which is some um, crime and criminal tracking network and systems, which is a central level digital policing initiative, which keeps track of all the uh, criminals in the country, or at least seeks to keep track of them through data fed at uh, individual police stations. So, how do all these uh, developments fare against the constitutional provisions? Uh, is there a spirit of cooperative federalism, like we used to say, in the functioning between uh, the state and the central? Uh, agencies or is it the case that the central or the union forces are eating into the territory of the states here okay so it is to be understood very clearly that the responsibility for policing continues to be a state subject and as provided in the constitution the second thing that needs to be understood very clearly is that despite all the increase in the numbers of the central forces whether it is the crp or the bsf or any other the original responsibility and jurisdiction and authority continues to be that of the local police for example if some something is to happen in bangalore or bengaluru the primary and original responsibility will be that of the commissioner of police of bengaluru he may be assisted on his request and i underline this point on his request by forces from the crpf or from the bsf or any other but not only does he continue to have the authority and the decision making but it is only on his request that others will come in that is the first point that needs to be understood as far as the increase in the numbers of forces with the center is concerned and the increase in their individual uh, you know uh, numbers in terms of how many people they had 50 years ago and how many they have now you have to understand that circumstances have changed new challenges have come up for the union and for the country as a nation 
and therefore a lot of this increase in the in the numbers of the central police forces is in response to that let me give you an example now cisf is a big organization now which handles all public sector and other you know institutions of national importance whether it is the airport or the baba atomic research center or any such you know establishment obviously they did not exist in the past so as these have increased in numbers they have increased in their strategic value and the overall security context has changed so cisf has grown in numbers in response to the changes in the security scenario and in response to the new challenges and new uh, you know vistas where government is now operating now uh, let us talk about the indo tibetan border police now the indo tibetan border was very quiet till about even 15 20 years ago but now because of various reasons that border needs to be patrolled more aggressively so the itbp numbers have gone up similarly for the crpf you have kashmir you have northeast you have left wing extremism etc etc so there is a requirement for the local police to be augmented in terms of numbers and therefore the government of india had to respond in terms of increasing the numbers of people available in the crpf i would also before i end this uh, this part of the comment mention that at times there is the attempt by the center to push itself without the concurrence of the state governments uh, which is something that should be resisted is often resisted uh, but uh, you know this tug of war between the union and the state is part of our daily politics and i think till now the equilibrium has more or less been maintained which is which is very healthy right stay tuned to all things policy we'll be right back after a short commercial break you spoke about i think in security situations for example the intervention by crpf in uh, central india during the left wing extremism which continues till date or say the itbp or bsf but there is also an increasing involvement uh, in investigation itself right like nia being the typical example because nia has complete policing uh, investigation powers for specific offenses including under uapa and so on which is uh, i mean even money laundering if i uh, remember correctly so there has also been an increase in investigative functions which is being carried out by the union agencies you are right uh, the nia as you know uh, and you mentioned was set up after the bombay uh, mumbai attacks and the intention was that there would be a centralized agency that would look at all terror cases and uh, cases that affect uh, national security unfortunately the nia has now started treading into areas which can cause some controversy some heartburn at the state level and uh, resistance to that has not been uh, as strong as one would expect but i suppose a stage will come when uh, the state governments especially if they are from different political hues they may start uh, pushing back the pushback has started in the case of the central bureau of investigation for example there are many states that have withdrawn their consent to the central bureau of investigation to operate in their state they say that we will not give you an omnibus power to operate in our state you will have to come on a case to case basis that is this happened because 
it was felt by those state governments that uh, the CBI was unnecessarily poking uh, its no uh, poking its nose into the affairs which are within the, the jurisdiction of the state police. I mentioned to you earlier that the jurisdiction of the state police is primary and original, and and that is never that can never be diluted. So what has happened in the case of CBI well, has happened because the CBI tried to tread where they they could have avoided. If the NIA were to continue to trade into those troubled waters, then maybe there will be a pushback there also. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, just a small correction. Uh, so the Enforcement Directorate uh, looks at offences under the Money Laundering Act and it is not the NIA. But in any case, uh, moving on, so let's talk about the Prakash Singh judgment. And I want to go into some detail uh, on the recommendations given by the Supreme Court in this judgment. Uh, this came out in 2006 and this had... Uh, some amount of positive impact in the functioning of police uh, uh, police forces and especially in terms of some legislative reforms which were much needed. So, I want to go over each of the recommendations. There were seven in total and I'll club a few of them which are similar in nature and ask you about, you know, uh, what what uh, prompted this kind of a recommendation and what is the uh, implementation, how do we fare and, you know, has the purpose been achieved or not. So, uh, the Supreme Court suggested that every state should set up something called the State Security Commission, which is essentially a broader organization or, or a commission which is going to direct broader policy uh, for the police forces. And this was to ensure that there is no unwarranted influence on the police or pressure on the police from political executive. At the same time, they also uh, directed setting up a National Security Commission, which will do similar functions uh, at the union level for looking after the central police organizations. So, what has happened with this, uh, Mr. Ahmed? What is the status and uh, has this managed to change things on the ground? Uh, I'll go back to uh, what happened subsequently to uh, subsequent to the Prakash Singh judgment. Mr. Prakash Singh himself filed a petition in the Supreme Court saying that many state governments have not implemented the recommendations uh, of the Supreme Court in the matter. Uh, so, the Supreme Court set up another commission to find out why the states are not agreeing to uh, make the necessary changes uh, as per the orders of the Supreme Court. And uh, the report of Justice uh, Malimath, if I remember correctly, or is it Justice Thomas, one of these, he met almost all the chief ministers of the states of, the, of India and he put up a report and uh, he very succinctly say, mentions in that that one chief minister told him that if I don't have control over the police, then what is the point of being chief minister? So that more or less sums up the views of the political executive on changing the status quo as far as the police is concerned. When this matter was taken up and it was placed before the Supreme Court, the then Chief Justice of India said, what more can we do? You know, there's a sense of helplessness. So these are two anecdotal incidents that I am mentioning, but they more or less sum up why, despite the best efforts of Mr. Prakash Singh, who is a great officer, and uh, the, the time spent by the Supreme Court examining the matter, despite all that, not much headway has been made. So, if you were to ask me in one sentence, I would say that till there is political uh, consensus, things will not move much forward. Right. But I do believe a couple of these recommendations uh, were implemented. For example, uh, regarding the selection and tenure of the DGP, right? And uh, the court ordered that it has to be uh, from amongst the top three IPS officers. 
and they should be given at least a minimum tenure of uh, two years. And the same goes for IGP, DIG, SPs and SHOs. Has this been at least put into practice? Structures for uh, transfer and posting of SPs and DIGs and IGs at the state level have been created. But those structures, unfortunately, are manned by officials in such a way that it's all within the government. It's four officers of the state, uh, Home Department and others, uh, and headed by the Chief Minister, uh, who also happens most more often than not to be the Home Minister. So it's an in-house thing. And except for adding to uh, some, some paperwork, no real change has happened in terms of there being a slightly more wide, you know, wide-ranging discussions about why someone is being transferred or why someone is not being transferred. So uh, my assessment on the basis of my experience is that if the chief minister of the state does not want something to happen or so does not want an officer to be there or wants an officer to be posted at a particular, particular place despite uh, complaints or whatever or his inefficiency, he will find ways and means of ensuring that that officer stays there. And that applies not only to SPs, but also to the DGP. I'll give you the example of Uttar Pradesh, where I live and where I have worked. For the last uh, about one year, there is no DGP. Uh, there is an acting person, a person who's been made acting DGP, in which case it, the chief minister does not have to seek any approval from the MHA or from the government of India. Before that, the MHA had uh, recommended a person uh, who continued uh, as DGP for about five, six months. Uh, but he was lame duck because he was not called for meetings. He was not called for any, any advice. And uh, at the end of about six months or so, he was dumped on some grounds. And uh, he languishes while others are being made acting DGs and the, D and the chief minister is making do with that. And this is the situation in certain other states also. Frankly, my, my assessment is that this, as far as the DGs is, are concerned, the Prakash Singh uh, model does not have much, uh, you know, much legs to stand on. If, if the chief minister is good enough to decide the 40,000 lakh crore budget of a state and he has the authority to transfer the chief secretary or other secretaries, why should he not be having the power to appoint a DGP is something beyond me. To believe that he has public interest at heart in every matter except when he is posting a DGP is, is, a difficult, is a difficult thing to accept. That's point number one. Number two, as, as I mentioned, when the accountability at the political level is of the chief minister, to expect him to, to appoint someone who is recommended by the center uh, to head the police force and to look after law and order is a bit of a dichotomy in a democratic situation it would then mean that there's a dual system of control. The political responsibilities of the chief minister and the administrative responsibility of someone else. That is not going to work. That is my assessment. And that is the reason why, despite the best efforts of the Supreme Court and of the, uh, the, the, the continued efforts of Mr. Prakash Singh, the political executive has not been able to agree to this arrangement. Right. So you do sound a very despondent note on uh, appointments. Uh, but let's look at another uh, important reform suggested by the court in this case, which is separation of investigation and law and order functions. I mean, this actually just came as off-the-cuff recommendation and the court does not delve too much in detail into how this has to be actually carried out. 
Uh, so, and I'm assuming this is more of a departmental issue and maybe the political uh, maneuvering will not be that prominent as far as this uh, issue is concerned. But I don't know, I may be wrong. Uh, then I want to know from you, is there merit to the suggestion, first of all? Uh, should we have separate units? Should we have specialized cadres who rise up the ranks and become better at uh, either of these functions or the kind of system where we have uh, officers being posted across and, you know, for different tenure? Is that better? Is that working well? Uh, so what is your sense on uh, achieving this separation between uh, investigation and law and order? So what has happened, uh, Sri, is that over the years, the, the kind of crimes that are happening is changing. For example, till about 15 years ago or 10 years ago, there was no cybercrime. Now there is a lot of cybercrime happening. So to deal with that, the local thana does not have the capacity or the training. So a a cadre of officers willy-nilly is coming up, a group of officers are coming up who handle cybercrimes and they have expertise in that. Similarly, there are certain kinds of crimes, uh, organized crime, which are transnational, trans across states, across districts, in a state like UP, the distance between Noida, which is in the west, and Balia, which is in the east, is, you know, more than 1,000 kilometers. So, organized crime, which is happening across these huge jurisdictions, requires specialization. So, there are uh, units within the state that handle that kind of organized crime, extortion, and that kind of thing. So, uh, willy-nilly, because of the change in the nature of the crime, specialized crime investigation units have come up. That is one part of it. The other part is that at this, at the station house level, at the Thana level, the only impediment to that is the availability of manpower. In theory, every police officer, every senior police officer believes that there should be, or not every, but most police officers believe that there should be a separation. The only thing that prevents them from actually implementing it in a very watertight manner is the availability of manpower. Because there are times when there are serious law and order issues, there are serious bandubas issues, because of which manpower from one section, uh, that is the investigating wing, has to be transferred or or deployed for bandubas duties. But I think broadly, I think across the state, across the states uh, of the country, specialized units for investigation of serious crimes have developed and I think this process is is ongoing. Right, so these have come up organically, you mean, like with over time, like few officers decided to pick up a case and they got better uh, after doing this again over some more time. Yes, correct. Right, so from what I understand, at least uh, what is stopping the police from achieving this sort of functional efficiency by separating these two uh, police uh, functions is basically state capacity, right? And that's something which is lacking across the board in our country. And uh, state capacity is an issue which we will come back to. But uh, there was one other very significant uh, sort of reformatory step suggested by the court in Prakash Singh, which is setting up of police complaint authorities, right, at both district and the state level. And they wanted to make this an independent authority, uh, which will look at uh, public complaints against uh, individual police officers in cases of uh, serious misconduct, custodial deaths, custodial rapes, or uh, causing police brutality in other ways and means. And this, I believe, was a very significant uh, reform coming from the top court because, uh, as we know, police accountability is something which is lacking. So, has this authority been set up? Has it been able to achieve any of its objective? What is the outlook on that? So, uh, in most states, there is no formal authority that has been set up. But let me then quickly add that 
when there is a matter of custodial death or of rape in police custody or anything of that nature, then it is something that is extremely seriously taken by the police hierarchy uh, and uh, or, you know, I will add uh, police encounters. These are issues that are taken very seriously by the police authority and uh, independent uh, investigation inquiries are done. Certain procedures and protocols have been added, have been worked out in almost all the states. Those are followed. There are certain protocols which are prescribed by the National Human Rights Commission. Those are followed. So, uh, in in or by the by the National Commission for Women in the case of uh, you know rape in such a, such matters. So, in those cases, the situation is definitely improved. But in other day to day cases where there is a misuse of authority by a police uh, official, let us say for you know handing over possession of a disputed property, or of misbehavior, or other things which are more day-to-day, there is no formal authority uh, which has been set up. You have to go to the uh, SP or the Commissioner of Police and he will uh, depute someone from within the police force to inquire into it. The purpose behind uh, the uh, recommendation of the Supreme Court was there would be public participation in these uh, bodies which are set up so that it would not be an in-house thing where the police is looking at complaints against another police officer but that there would be people from civic society, uh, maybe jurists or journalists or other social workers who would give a outsider's view of what is happening. That kind of thing uh, we are still waiting for. And that reason, once again, let me quickly add, why is it not happening? It is not happening because the, in the ultimate analysis, the political executive wants to have complete control over, over what the police does or does not do, so that they are the only people who decide the reward and punishment. No one else. Right. And uh, I just wanted to add a little on the aspect of citizen struggle uh, against the police for accountability in our country, right? And there's a long struggle. And in fact, some changes in laws were affected, for example, after the infamous Mathura case in uh, uh, UP back in 1980s, which led to, you know, provisions on uh, custodial rape being introduced uh, in the IPC. And however, the police forces or the governments have not been very receptive to such uh, changes for making the public more accessible and uh, or making the police more accountable to the public rather. In fact, even like simple things like, you know, getting the right to file a FIR and having it recorded for all cognizable offense. This was fought up uh, till the Supreme Court where the court finally said that, you know, the police is duty bound to do this. And the other example I can think of was just handing a copy of FIR uh, to the complainant. Even this required a court order. So this struggle is ongoing. But uh, this brings uh, me to the larger picture of uh, how to legislate on the matter of police. And if you were to have a new law, of course, after the Prakashing Judgment, a Model Police Act was formed by a particular committee at the union level. Some states did adopt it, but uh, there have been a lot of criticisms, again, that this retains the 1861 law uh, in most aspects, at least in the crucial aspects with uh, some uh, elementary uh, or, uh, you know, some small changes here and there. So if you were to think of uh, police legislation and... uh, I want to ask you, if you were to imagine a police legislation, what should be the guiding principles behind such a law? And how exactly should we structure a police in a democratic system like India, given all our complexities and uh, challenges? I think 
the first thing that needs to be you know made a part of that law is that the police should not be seen as a tool for for uh, putting people in place but as a service i think instilling that essential concept into all police legislation is important number 1 number 2 the involvement of the police involvement of civil society in whatever form in complaint redressal of the police against the police beg your pardon uh, these are the two essential things that that are required so that would require uh, the first one about change in the attitude will require a legislative acceptance acknowledgement of the primacy of such a change and then follow it up with extensive and intensive training so that the police subculture today of being non answerable changes obviously that will take time but it is something that needs that process needs to be started secondly when there is involvement of civil society in whatever form in complaint redressal it will give the opportunity to the common man to openly and frankly and in detail you know pour out his woes in front of people who are like him uh, or part of of part of the general public rather than to a police officer which has its own uh, uh, you know giving it out to a police officer has its own limitations we all recognize that these are the two essential changes that are required to be done now once these two things are done there has to be then accountability now accountability has to be once again set up accountability commissions or accountability boards have to be set up at various levels so that the action of or inaction of every police officer during the discharge of his duties is put up before a neutral body obviously we will have police officers also uh, and it is they who will decide whether the action is correct or incorrect sufficient or insufficient biased or fair and on that basis reward and punishment is is meted out to police officers right and of course all of this rests on uh, the right time in our politics and the political will to manifest this which i believe is perhaps the major challenge for our police forces to actually emerge out of that uh, colonial uh, baggage that they seem to be weighed down today uh, but uh, thank you so much for joining me on this discussion mr amit and looking forward to many more on police jockey absolutely thank you very much if you liked our show don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the ivm network you can tune into them on the ivm podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.